The following is a message by Professor Joel Kim of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at westcal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 6 through 23. I'm sorry, 6, verse 8, 23. Hear now the word of God. Once there was, when, once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel... He took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and great army, and there came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way And this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away. And they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So far the reading of his word. In light of our time constraints this morning, we want to focus on two broad-stroke themes that arise from this text. You see the story, and the story is an interesting one. Uh, Syrians and the Israelites were at battle, at war against one another. As they planned, the Syrians, every time they planned, the Israelites seemed to know. And there was a question that arose amongst them, maybe there is a spy here. 
there was a spy league going on. They wanted to know exactly who was telling the Israelite leaders exactly where the Syrians will end up. It was found out quickly enough that there is a man of God named Elisha uh, for the side of Israel who seemed to know everything. In fact, he seemed to be in the bedroom of the king listening to what was being discussed, fully knowing what he needs to do next. He sends an army, not to attack a nation of Israel, but to attack an individual. And he surrounds the city in which uh, Elisha actually resides. And it's at this point the servant of Elisha actually comes out and sees what's taking place. In fear, he cries out, Alas, my master, what should we do? And it's at this point Elisha prays and asks that his eyes may be opened, the servants, so that he may see that those who are for them is greater than those who are against them. And they were able to see the heavenly army gathered to protect Elisha, his servant, his prophet, against the enemy that had gathered. It's at this juncture we want to talk briefly about the theme of God at war. For throughout the Old Testament, we see God waging a holy war against his enemy, protecting his people, and in fact, in this case, protecting his servant, his prophet. We saw this in Exodus chapter 15 when the Israelites left their captivity in Egypt. And as they exclaimed, and as they praised the Lord for what he has done, they cried out by saying, the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name, chapter 15, verse 3. Only a few chapters afterwards, you see an interesting a battle take place between the Amalekites and the Israelites. As they were preparing for battle, God came to Moses, who told Joshua the words of the Lord, simply saying, prepare the Israelites for battle. And at the end of the scene, the simple answer was that the Israelites won. In between, instead of focusing on the valor of the Israelites or the weaponry of these former slaves or the strategy that was involved or for what reason they were battling in the first place, here the author chooses to show us the image of a person upon a high rock, a hill, where here uh, Moses was lifting up his arms. And when his arms were lowered, Israelites were losing. When his arms were hired and, and raised, Israelites were winning. His younger colleagues, frantic and in seeing what was taking place, stand on each side of Moses so his arms may be lifted up. At the end, Lord, the Lord explains exactly what happened. For the hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. The author wanted us to see, despite the battle taking place on the ground, the actual war was waged by God. In fact, it was he who was fighting for them. We can multiply these stories, perhaps I can end, by simply pointing out the Gideon and the Midianites and the number that gathered to battle against them. Too many, the Lord said. In fact, he whittled them away until 300 were gathered. If you and I were involved in this battle taking place... I would have prayed that I would have been those individuals sent home. 300 is surely not enough. But at the end, they won. And in fact, the Lord reminded them of why this happened and took place. For he says in chapter 7, The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands, in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. For it was not they who won the victory. It was the Lord fighting for them. It was God at war that ultimately brought victory for the Israelites. It seems that this theme of a divine warrior found throughout the Old Testament was hoped for by the Israelites during the exile period and expected by those who were contemporaries of Jesus. They were looking for a savior figure. And and for me, who was born in Korea, 
in a city called Incheon, near a, a, a park called the Freedom Park, which overlooks the landing portion, the sea, in which the uh, Allied armies landed to divide the, 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 the Russian armies in half and North Korean armies in half so that they can reconquer the peninsula. Here stands about a 10-foot-tall statue of General, General, uh, General Douglas MacArthur. Not much herald in America anymore, but here in this statue is a little statuette with a, uh, a little sign on top of it that simply said, the liberator of Korea, the liberator of Korea. The Israelites were looking for this kind of liberator, a divine warrior, to come and conquer and to take them away from this oppressed state. What they got instead, however, was Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist seemed confused himself. And when his contemporaries and he himself, apparently expecting a Messiah who would come in this powerful divine warrior way, they were trying to figure out what was actually taking place. When Jesus came and didn't fit this description, he in prison sends his disciples to question Jesus. In Luke chapter 7, he says, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Jesus' response to their question And his questioning was to wage war against spirits and powers by driving out demons and evil spirits. He defeated the powers of the enemy by healing the sick, the mute, and the deaf. Even when his enemies believed that he himself had the upper hand at the end. Even when Jesus died upon the cross, the cross and the resurrection declared victory for this warrior who had come. Not in the way anticipated, but truly the way that is needed. That is, in this case, the divine warrior had come and by his death and resurrection conquered death and and conquered the evil principalities. This is why Paul, borrowing this theme of this militant Lord who has come, says in Colossians chapter 2, When you are dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations, that war against us, and, the, and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. For you see, God was in Christ reconciling the world. The action that, actions that the Old Testament and Judaism had ascribed to God, the New Testament authors ascribed to Christ. Indeed, God is at war in Christ. Of course, the battle is won, but not done. The cross anticipates the consummation when Jesus Christ himself will return as a cloud rider, bringing his heavenly host and the heavenly army, surrounded by them so that all of eternity his kingdom may reign. But even now, even now, we stand confident because of the victory won. It hasn't been consummated yet, and as the scripture reminds us, we are to put on the whole armor of God until the day, as long as we're on this side of glory, we are to prepare ourselves for these battle taking place. But yet, even when we do so, we do so not with fear or trepidation, we do so with confidence. For as Elisha was able to say with confidence, fully knowing and fully seeing, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. We are also able to echo the words of Paul when he says, If God is for us, who can stand against us? For when we open our eyes to see the heavenly hosts, 
God who saved us in Christ, God who fought on our behalf in Christ. Here our confidence is not in ourselves, or nor in the circumstances that surround us, but indeed in, in the echoing the words of Paul, if indeed God is for us, who can possibly stand against us? For he will allow us to persevere. He will make us endure. But it's not only the theme of God at war or a divine warrior. What's intriguing about this event is the mercifulness of this divine warrior. Look at the ending of this story. Here, as the story continues, Elisha is attacked. Not not just a nation of Israel, but a person named Elisha is attacked, a servant of God, a prophet of God. And as they saw the heavenly host, here, as he prayed, the enemies were blinded, and they let them away. It's not a physical blindness, obviously, for they're able to find their way to Samaria, convinced by Elisha that here, the man that they were looking for is not here in this city, but in Samaria, where they would now be surrounded by the Israelites. As if it was a cruel joke, he prayed, open their eyes so that they may see, surrounded by the Israelites. Here, the Israelite king is thirsty for battle. He said, shall we kill them? Shall we kill them? Twice, he repeats, so that destruction will be upon them. I wonder what the Syrians might have thought themselves when they opened their eyes and saw exactly their predicament. Death was surely near. But the surprising element to this story is that instead of destruction, what they received was instead was a great banquet. And this is contrary to the God at war. In fact, what was expected was destruction for the enemy of God. Uh, you may recall that one of the reasons why Saul and, uh, Saul and Samuel fought against one another and argued was over this point exactly. When in defeating the Amalekites, Saul was commanded by uh, Samuel to destroy everything. But it was Saul who chose on his own to save some and to justify what he did by saying, Oh, it was offered to the Lord. For his sake, I kept all these things. It's at this point the stinging rebuke of Samuel comes when he says, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Perhaps we don't even need to look that far back when we think of the battle that was waged on Mount Carmel between Elijah, a prophet of God, and the prophets of Baal and Asherah. It was truly unfair if you think about it. Uh, Because here, uh, Elijah was a minority, wasn't it? One battling 850. That's unfair. Even more so, they get to go first. In this contest, if they were able to light the altar, the game's won. You don't even have a chance to say your own. Even further, you can even think of it in saying that they were battling in their own turf, working on Baal's specialty. For he was a god of rain and fertility. Talk about uh, the odds against the man of God, in this case, Elijah. You know what happened. Uh, You know exactly what happened. And when the whole battle was over, you saw the result as well. And the end result cannot be better described than what it says in 1840 of 1 Kings. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Destruction is what's anticipated. Annihilation is what's foretold. Here, the enemy cannot stand before the righteous hand of God. What we see in Elisha, however, 
is a completely unexpected ending. Instead of being shown the door and death, he shows mercy. All this despite the fact that attack was not against the nation of Israel, but he himself. What's interesting about all this is that the New Testament authors, particularly Matthew, draw parallels between Elijah and John the Baptist and Elisha and Jesus. It is a foretelling figure as to who Jesus would be like. You saw one element of it, of blind seeing. Remember what Elisha did? Having received a double, received a double portion of the Spirit, his list of miracles included restoring sight to the blind, cured leprosy, restore the dead to life, and brought good news to the poor. What, remember what Jesus told John's disciples to report in Matthew eleven four through 5? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you heard and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Elisha showed mercy to those who do not deserve it, not only sparing them from death, death, but inviting them to a great feast. Indeed, what the Assyrians receive from Elisha is unexpected and undeserved mercy. One thing we often forget, and it's easy for us to forget, that you and I, all of us, were once Christ's enemy, following, according to Ephesians chapter 2, the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We were in rebellion against God. We were in opposition. We were in battle positions against our Lord and King. But it's at this point, instead of destruction to those who deserve it, you and I, was demonstrated the love of God. When it told to us, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not only dying for us, but calling us his own. Inviting to us to join his family and that we may be invited to that everlasting feast and a banquet where we may enjoy him forever and evermore. For you see, my friends, the story of Elisha here and the battle that has taken place circles around a character unseen. And the unseen character is the real one that's at battle. It is God who is at battle for Elisha. It is God who shows mercy. And in this we realize in the New Testament on the other side of the cross It is God in Christ who is at battle for us. It is God in Christ who shows us, who deserve nothing else than death, his mercy by giving us life and laying before us an eternal banquet that you and I may enjoy. Let's pray. Lord, who are we that we deserve your mercy and your condescension? Lord, what have we done that we deserve a place at your table to enjoy you now and forever and evermore? Lord, we're humbled by your mercy and your love to us. We are ever grateful for your protection with which we can echo the words of Paul in saying, if God is for us, who can stand against us? Lord, so many things in our lives may overwhelm us, But, Lord, there's nothing that encourages us and and, and wakes us up than the truth in knowing that you in Christ have shown mercy to us by saving us, that you in Christ, 
still now surrounds us so that until that day we meet you face to face, we will be in your sustaining and protecting hands. We thank you for your mercy and your love, and we ask that not only will we experience these things on a daily basis, but we will with boldness and truthfulness proclaim these truths to those around us. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Copyright 2007 Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.